Well, as January comes to a close, how are New Year's resolutions looking? You get out of debt yet? You lower your monthly payments? You start saving some money yet? Well, we can make it happen for you right now with a few quick clicks at SaveWithConrad.com. We're licensed in more than 40 states and now including Connecticut, so we can save more families than ever before. And you don't need perfect credit or money out of your pocket to do this. And I'm talking to you if you're in a 30-year loan. It's not a matter of if we can save you money. It's a matter of how much. I even convinced my dad to cut five years off of his loan this month. And you can do this too. Find out how much money you can save when you take years worth of unnecessary house payments off of your loan. And instead of working for all that money, paying taxes on it and giving it away, no, stick it in your own bank account. Pay yourself, man. That's what we're suggesting that you do with that extra savings. And by the way, if you've got credit card debt, we can help you with that too. No matter what your situation is, if you're looking for a lower monthly payment, if you're looking to get out of that apartment into a new house, maybe you're a veteran and you're not exactly sure what that does for you. How about you can buy a house with no money down? But if you're serious about saving money, there's only so much that clipping coupons is going to do for you. And yes, working extra hours are great, but if you're just putting in all that extra time to pay a crazy high interest rate, what are you doing? Give yourself a life pack, keep more of your own money and skip your next two payments at savewithconrad.com. NMLS number 65084, equal housing lender. And remember, it's no cost, no obligation. And if we can't save you money, we won't waste your time. And even credit scores in the 500s can be approved at savewithconrad.com. Welcome to something to wrestle with. Something to wrestle with. Bruce Pritchard. Bruce Pritchard. Well, you know. Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to Something to Wrestle with Bruce Pritchard. Bruce, what's going on, man? How are you? I'm excellent. Just another beautiful day in paradise, by God. Did you just fart? No, you know what I did? As I moved my thing around the the, the microphone. I mean, have we have you not done this before? Moved it like this? You no, know, like a podcast, you know, where people are listening and... I mean, as soon as we started, then you started moving it. Why, why, why didn't you move it before we started recording? Well, I, you know, the funny thing is, is I interviewed somebody today and they were telling me about how podcasting is the way of the future. Oh, really? Yeah. Then they had, and I, they had no I idea was talking about talking. this little wall and then I was thinking of the little wall and I moved it. I didn't know that it was going to fart when I moved it. <laughs> so. Some, you know how you are sometimes, Conrad, you know, like you're home and you move and you, you fart. If somebody moves you, sometimes it just comes out. And that's, I think that's just what happened. Well, what's come out lately is I hate Steven Singer. You heard me. I hate Steven Singer and all the other jewelers in America hate him too, because he's got the best Valentine's gift ever. We're excited to tell you about it. Steven Singer and Something to Wrestle have brought you a real long stem American Beauty Rose. It's been lavishly and deeply dipped in pure 24 karat gold. It will never need water. It will never wilt. It will never die. And this is something unique, special, and lasts forever. It comes with a personalized love note from you all in Steven's signature gift box. Ship for free and starting at just 59 bucks right now. Go to IHateStevenSinger.com. That's I hate Steven singer.com or the other corner of eighth and Walnut in Philadelphia to see what we're talking about. Real roses from a real jeweler for your real love. at I hate Steven singer.com. It's something we all love. 
is our radicals episode. This is the first time we're doing a revisit like this. I'm going to strongly encourage you to go listen to that episode first and then pivot back here with us, or maybe just finish this one and then go back and check it out. But I think these are going to be great companion pieces. Back then we weren't doing a ton of research. It was very much just two guys talking about wrestling and off the top of our head. We've got some actual, you know, news and notes here from the dirt sheets at the time that we can compare notes with. This will be a little different than that one, uh, but I think they'll fit together nicely. And man, I don't think I can stress how important that episode was to the success of this podcast right here. Well, hell Conrad shit. I, now it's like, I got something to do. See back then we didn't know anybody's listening. That's true. We saw like 60 to a hundred thousand people were listening and stuff. We didn't know like all them people were listening. Yeah. It was that's like, cause of billions. It's cabillions. There you go. Uh, that's how many people were in the building at WrestleMania three too. I don't know if you knew that. Cause of billions. Yes. Uh, that's, that's actually what the gate receipt said. So listen, we, we think these fit nicely together. And, uh, you know, the other thing that fits nicely together is, is us uh, helping you move your product or service. If you'd be interested in us advertising your product or service, hurry to advertise with Conrad.com fill out the simple and easy form. And our man, Dave green will hook you up and get you here on something to wrestle. But there were some guys looking to get on Monday night raw. And on the January 31st, 2000 raw, I can't believe this is real, but today is the 20 year anniversary when the wrestling world was shocked when the backbone of WCW, Eddie Guerrero, Dean Malenko, Perry Saturn, uh, and what everybody else thought was the WCW world champion, Chris Benoit walked through the crowd in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and just sit ringside on Monday night raw. As we mentioned, this was our eighth episode more than three years ago. Uh, easily one of the most popular shows we ever did. So we're going to try to retell that same story now with the benefit of research. And I think these are great companion pieces and what I like so much about that first episode, Bruce is, you know, it was you, you know, telling a story and you know, that's what you've made your living in in professional wrestling, telling stories, but this one has all the emotions, you know, we got to hear you happy and sad and mad and everything in between is, uh, I don't know. There's no way we can ever really top that one, but with the benefit of the research here, I think we can have some, some new information. I was just going to say my kids and my wife get to see me happy, sad, mad, pretty much every day. Well, in the first show, you talked about how Perry Saturn called you the night after WCW sold out pay-per-view. And you mentioned how himself, Eddie Malenko and Benoit were all given their releases. What are your memories of that phone call? How do you think Perry had your number in those days? Was he calling a cell phone? Did he call the office? Did he have your home number? Uh, he actually called cell phone and I'm trying to remember how the hell, I don't know if, if Benoit had given it to him or how he had gotten it. I actually forget, but getting that, I remember looking at it and going, yeah, I'll answer this and stepping out of the production meeting room to take the phone call. And going out in the hallway and getting all this information. And I thought, well, hell, this could be a nice little coup if it were true. And if they really and truly did have, um, have the releases. I remember the first thing thinking is 
are we being set up here? Because if someone was under contract at the time, you know, you had to be very careful about what you said to them and, and what that contact was. So uh, my first spidey sense went up and said, all right, uh, you know, kind of prove it. Send me your release, send me a copy of it. We'll take a look at it and see if we can have any further discussion. Well, it's interesting that, that that's how it all started because Perry Saturn is the guy that, and we'll get to it. You saw a lot of upside in. Well, let's remind everybody at the sold out pay-per-view, which went down on January 16th, Chris Benoit and Sid Vicious wind up in the main event. Uh, lots of people pulled up lame for that one with concussions. Uh, Jeff Jarrett received a concussion from a super fly or yeah, uh, Jimmy snook, a super fly splash off the top of a cage uh, on one of the shows there. So he's out, uh, Bret Hart still had his head kicked off, uh, by Bill Goldberg. So he's out. So lots of folks are out. Nobody knows exactly what this is going to be. So they decided to throw Chris Benoit and Sid vicious in there for the world title. The special guest referee is Arn Anderson, who, as we know, is a former stable mate with Chris Benoit and had his own personal situation in real life with Sid. Um, it's even been said that going into this because of the upheaval, I guess we should give the context of that too. Uh, Bischoff was sent home in September of 99, a month later, uh, the Lord and savior would come in, uh, Vince Russo. People thought this guy was going to pull the nose up. WCW quickly loses confidence. They want to replace him. And it's decided upon by the temporary management, Kip Fry, that Chris Benoit, or rather Kevin Sullivan should be the guy in charge of the wrestling booking and Chris Benoit and his bunch the rest of the revolution stable, if you will. And some others don't think that is going to be the best idea for their career. So they're all one by one (coughs) trying to find their way out of WCW and Sullivan's solution is let's prove that we're not going to do that to Chris, that we're not going to punish him because of our real life situation. Let's just put the fucking belt on him. So they do. But perhaps Sullivan allegedly, according to the rumor and innuendo, tells Sid, make sure one of your legs are under the ropes when Benoit applies the move and the pinfall. Uh, so you were technically under the ropes. So either way, they put the belt on Chris. He has a big speech that night. And the next day, before the show starts, uh, he gets his release from WCW and hands him over the belt. So now you've got an opportunity to sign the current WCW world champion, just a couple of years removed from when WCW signed Bret Hart while he was champion. Do I have that right? Yeah. But again, we weren't looking to, um, we, we weren't looking at Chris in that way. I mean, the fact that he was their champion actually kind of, eh, we didn't care. And then it wasn't, so you're, you're the cracker box champion. Okay. That, that didn't mean anything. The talent. Yes. That meant something. Um, at least, you know, three out of the four, there was a lot of interest in, and that was more the, the, the championship meant less than, less than nothing to us at the time. So other than Ric Flair and Chris, I don't think you guys have had an opportunity 
like this before to, to sign the WCW world champion, but you had to be jumping at the chance and, uh, Meltzer would write, it wound up with Benoit, um, Perry, Dean, Shane Douglas, Eddie, Conan, and Kidman going to Bill Bush as a group asking for either their release or for Sullivan to be taken off the booting booking committee. Of course, Conan is saying he speaks for Hooventude and Ray. The next day, a lot of those luchadors, um, had an opportunity, whether it was Hooventude or Psychosis or Ray to talk with Bill Bush and none of them ask for their release, but they all say if the rest of that group leaves, they'd like to leave with them at some point, you know, do you, or, or when, or how do you get when that this whole wave of people want to come? I guess what I'm trying to ask is, does Perry mention three or four guys or does he mention like all 10 of these dudes? Perry mentioned specifically Benoit Guerrero and Malenko. And he also made it very clear that he was only speaking for those four guys and that other people may ask for their release and that other people may be contacting us, but he did want to make it clear as, as did all four of those guys that those four were together and they wanted to come in together, but that there was no one else like there wasn't a fifth or a sixth or a seventh or 10, um, that were a part of their group. You know what I mean? It was like those four were, were looking to come as a unit and everyone to the man said, look, if you don't, uh, want us at least take Benoit because they felt that, that Benoit would have a pretty tough time there with, uh, Kevin Sullivan and, um, Mike Graham. So, you know, that, that was, that was a constant throughout the entire negotiation. And, and every time that we talked, just letting us know that other guys will contact you and say, Hey, we're a part of them. They're not. And that came from all four guys. So the day after sold out, all these guys meet with, uh, Bill Bush. They're trying to work out some sort of a compromise to keep everybody happy. He even suggests I'll just let Kevin Sullivan book Saturday night shows and you guys don't have to work them. So he has no power and he's trying to appease them and says, who would you like to be on a booking committee? And they like Terry Taylor and Arn Anderson and Vince Russo. And it feels like there's been a compromise until there's a second meeting when he tells the group Benoit has to stay because we've written TV about him, but everybody else go home. And the rumor is this happened because someone in the group or maybe everyone in the group had filed a complaint with the human resources department of time Warner against Mike Graham and allegedly, uh, Mike Graham took issue with what they were trying to do with Kevin Sullivan, considering the way everything went down with Nancy and Kevin and Chris and said some things that you can't say, uh, in a corporate world. So when you first have a conversation with these guys about how this release came to be, what did they say? How did that come up? What were their concerns? Well, their concerns were that with Kevin Sullivan being in charge and the fact that, that Chris had, had married Kevin's ex-wife and I don't think they were married yet. I don't know, but regardless there, there were issues there and they didn't feel that Kevin 
would be fair to them, uh, no matter what position that they were in. In addition to that, I think that Mike Graham allegedly took exception with that, that Mike had made threats to them. And they were like, why the hell are we doing this? And so in bringing up their concerns, that's how the a release came about. And it was like anybody that you know wants a release, you can have a release type deal. And they said they wanted their release. And when I was talking to Perry that day, it, it was like, we'll get it to you. We'll, we'll fax it right now. And I said, okay. So I gave him a number to, to fax it. And as soon as you can get it over to us, we can talk. And I remember going back in and letting Vince know and, he was very interested because there, there was interest. There was interest in Perry and there was interest in Benoit. Um, for me, Eddie Guerrero was a big coup because I had always been a fan of Eddie Guerrero and Art Bar, the La Machines. And uh, I thought it was a coup. And I thought, you know, Malenko was a solid hand. But yeah, that was four great talent in one fell swoop. And if they were available, why not grab them? Lots of people in WCW uh, tried to talk Kevin Sullivan out of this decision to make Benoit the champion. And, uh, he thinks it's the right thing to do and it's the right thing for business and an easy way to send a message to everybody and keep everybody happy. But allegedly JJ Dillon and Mike Graham, certainly as we heard and Sid vicious, none of them were really for it. But at one point it seemed like, uh, Benoit wasn't even going to accept the title. With the idea being, if I know I'm leaving, I shouldn't do that, but he does accept the title, but then turns it back over the next day. I mean, them leaving like this really leaves WCW creatively in a little bit of a lurch, does it not? It does, but then again, they shouldn't have offered the releases. Well, <laughs> you know what I mean? To be clear, I don't know that you were totally in the loop on that, but they asked for the release because of the unsafe working conditions. Cause Mike Graham said, if you had done to me what you did to Kevin Sullivan, I wouldn't be making you champion. I'd have your goddamn head on the stick. So they use that to sort of plateau, uh, the conversation with, Hey, and we can leave now. No compromise needed. Give us our fucking releases. And, and that's the way it all went down. According to the legend. Well, according to the legend. And it was also, you know, again, according to what we were being told at the time, all of that. And the WCW offered them the release. It's like, okay, if you're unhappy and you're that unhappy, you don't want to be here. We'll give you a release. And I think that's what they really wanted anyway. Just to remind everybody, Dean Malenko, Shane Douglas, Perry Saturn, and uh, Chris Benoit made up a group called revolution. And we should mention that the two guys that are pretty consistently mentioned with this group, not necessarily Ray and psychosis and Hooventude. uh, but everybody else was Billy Kidman. And uh, I guess there's three guys. Kidman was apparently promised a big push and they get him to sort of stick around. We know he's going to wind up in WWE years later, but, uh, the other two names are Conan and Shane Douglas. Now it's interesting to note these other four guys outside of a, an appearance here or there as like a one-off and never actually been contracted WWE employees except for Conan and Shane Douglas and Shane Douglas had, uh, he said a lot about this. He says, we had talked about 
but we had that we had to be willing to walk away in order to back up our position. We went into Bush's office and sat down with Bill and everybody and took their turn in talking and saying what their concern was. When it came time for me to talk, a couple of guys kept butting in and started talking. And then in the middle of the meeting, uh, Perry said to Bill, you once told me, Bill, you didn't want anybody unhappy in your dressing room and you give anybody the release that wasn't happy here. And Bill said, I don't remember exactly saying those words. And Perry said, no, no, no. That's what you said. Don't go back on your word. Not be a man, Bill. And Bill said, I said something similar to that. So I'll agree with that. And Perry said, okay, fine. I want my release. And Shane Douglas says, now that caught me completely off guard because although we had covered our asses on the what if situation, I didn't know we were going in there to tender any resignations. Chris Benoit then spoke up and said, that goes for me too. And after the meeting let out, I went back in and I said, Bill, this is the first thing I want to tell you is that I, I definitely do not want to leave the company. And he thanked me for saying that apologized for the meeting and told him I didn't recognize where the meeting was going. And I didn't even get a chance to talk in that first meeting. And I told him my concern and, and it's that you guys are paying me well into the seven figures to be here over the next three years. And, uh, I don't want to be a welfare case. So then the next night on nitro JJ comes and says, Bill would feel more comfortable if you guys weren't around, he'd like you all to go home and he'll contact you later. And he asked JJ, is this a punitive measure? He says, no. So everybody goes back to their hotels, packs their bags, has dinner, and they all swear they're going to stick together. Quote, my whole thing was I had worked with Vince on three different occasions. If there's any weakness at all, he'll find it and he'll capitalize on it. In other words, if we stick together, we stand to make a hell of a lot more money than if we stand apart. We all shook on it. We all hugged on it. We all drank a glass of wine on it and toasted to it. We said, if anybody got a phone call, we would share that information with each other throughout the whole week. I did that. Then I got a call from Bruce Pritchard. I hung up and called the other guys and they did the same. Do you remember calling Shane Douglas? No. He says that the next call he gets is from Vince Russo. And he says, where are you? And Shane says, I'm in Pittsburgh. And he says, are you sure about that? And Shane says, why would I lie about that Vince? And he tells him that a friend of his called from New York and says the boys were in Stanford negotiating with Vince, but he didn't know which guys. So he asked Shane if he knew where those other guys were. And he said, no, I haven't spoken to him in a couple of days, but I'll call and find out. So this is directly from Shane Douglas. I called Dean and asked him where he was. He said he was at his brother's beach house in Florida. I said, are you sure? And. Let me tell you what I've heard. And he said, Shane, I would never fuck you over like that. If we did, I'd be the first guy to have called and told you, you have my word as a friend. I'm at my brother's beach house in Florida. So I called Vince back and told him, don't buy it. Dean's in Florida. And he said, Shane, I don't want to call anybody a liar, but I know for a fact they're up there. And Russo makes a suggestion that he follows and he calls the hotel where Russo suspects they might be and asks for those guys under their shoot name. And sure enough, all four are checked in and have rooms there. A lot to unpack there. Did you ever talk to Shane uh, Douglas about any of this? No. Shane, you know, Shane was not a part of that. And Shane called the office and he may have spoken to JR at some point. I don't recall. I certainly didn't call Shane. Um, But I don't recall 
talking to Shane through any of that. And again, JR's office might have. And, you know, I, I might have even spoken to Shane at one point, but I didn't reach out to call him to come in any, any time during this. What hypothetically would that have, in your opinion, hurt their negotiating power with Vince had Shane been a non-negotiable for them? I don't think so. I, it was a non-issue because it didn't happen. So it was a non-issue any, any way you look at it. And while yes, all four guys wanted to come together and they all wanted to stick together and were making it together. They all also individually made their own deals and were, you know, told us, look, if you know, you want two of us, you want one of us, you know, like whatever it is, we're all cool with that. But, um, so yeah, I mean, they came together, but at the same time, they were four individuals that made four individual separate, different deals. Would, uh, did Vince or anybody in the front office have some sort of burden or their saddle about Shane's previous, uh, stints with the company or the things he had said, but you're asking that like Shane was a part of this. He wasn't, no, no, so he I'm wasn't not. a part of the discussion. Not asking you know what that. I'm saying? All right. Pretend we're not talking about the radicals here, buddy. Would you have ever considered bringing back Shane Douglas? We'd consider bringing anybody back. Okay. But I just, I was just curious cause it never happened and I didn't, we never talked about why. for whatever reasons. I don't know if Shane wanted too much money in, in the times I didn't negotiate with Shane. So I can't answer that question, but I can tell you in, in this regard, he, he wasn't a part of the equation, not from my vantage point. So the reason I mentioned this is just a year prior to this, back in 1999, uh, when he's looking to leave ECW, WCW winds up with his uh, employment contract and, um, WWE offers 150 grand or so, according to Shane, uh, WCW offers a multiple of that. So of course he went with the guaranteed money from WCW. The other fellow who is involved in this uh, standoff with WCW is your old friend, Charles, who we know as Conan. And we talked about that a lot on our first radicals episode. And there was an interesting phone call that happened and. Uh, the result of us telling that story got you a little bit, a little heat with your old pal, Charles. And thankfully things are better these days. And that's all been squashed, but tell us, uh, what you remember about that phone call. Oh, well, the day of, of the infamous Conan phone call was kind of a hectic day. And, uh, this person had called many, many times and one of the assistants in the office of guy, you know, could you, could you talk to this guy? Um, he's been calling a lot and, and I can't really understand him. And he's looking up and I just was, yeah, sure. You know, it's, I don't know who the fuck it is. Uh, but yes, I'll return the call so that the call is returned. And before I could, I think he had called back and they put him through to me. And it was, you know, yo, 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 this is K dog. And I didn't know who the fuck K dog was. I hadn't been watching uh, WCW. I didn't know that Conan was going by K dog. I knew Conan, um, but I, I was not familiar with the K dog persona. 
And I suggested that he send some pictures and tape in, and we'd be happy to take a look at him. And that was that. After the fact, um, that night, Eddie Guerrero asked me, says, hey, man, did Conan call you and, and you tell him to send pictures and a tape? I said, no, I hadn't heard from Conan. And he says, he goes, no, nah, no, nah, man. He goes, he goes, K-Dog called me and told me that I said, K-Dog. I said, yeah, I talked to somebody named K-Dog, uh, but I didn't talk to Conan. He says, no, man, Conan is K-Dog. <laughs> and I was like, oh, fuck. And a little misunderstanding there. And when I first told the story, the story Conan was like, Hey, fuck you. Um, since then we had plenty of time to sit down and talk about it, have a laugh at it and move on from it. But at the time it was, I had no idea, no clue whatsoever. And that if it just said, Hey, this is Conan. I would go, Oh, Hey Conan. Yeah. I know who Conan is. And we could have chatted, but I had no idea who the fuck K-Dog was and thought that it was just some some guy looking for a job with the name gimmick name K-Dog. Send me some pictures and tape. We'll take a look. Pretty funny that that's how you guys got sideways a few years ago. Uh, we should mention that Eddie has talked about the fact that, you know, even if Vince doesn't want this group, He's already reached out to Paul Lee about potentially coming back to ECW and he had some feelers out in new Japan just so they had something lined up, but we know none of that actually is something that we wind up needing. Meltzer would report WCW sent an unconditional release letter to Chris Benoit, Dean Malenko, Conan, Shane Douglas, Eddie Guerrero, and Perry Saturn on January 19th, thus canceling the planned meeting between bill bush and the group um later that same day so they're all eligible to start on february 1st provided that they agree to not say anything publicly disparaging about wcw and agree not to sue and uh those signed uh those releases are signed and executed on the 25th so benoit simon which is uh dean malenko guerrero and perry are all free to start with titan as soon as the coming week and allegedly around the same time, um, Russo comes to the office, has his own meeting with Bush, making demands of his own, either wanting a release from his contract, which had 21 of the 24 months remaining, and then wound up agreeing to stay on as a writer for the show, but not working underneath Sullivan, Juster, or JJ, just demanding that he be put back in charge of a booking position for nine months without any interruption or interference. And uh, at press time, Elsa would say no decision was made about that. And we know ultimately the direction they go is to bring back Eric Bischoff and try to work with them together. But in this crazy moment of hokey pokey, not just with the boys, but with the office, did anybody bring up Vince Russo? For what? Well, just perhaps Russo coming back. No, God, no. And yeah, and Something you said earlier about Vince Russo either checking at the hotel and saying that the guys were registered under their real names. That wasn't the case. They were not registered under their, their names or either the ring names or their real names. What were they registered under? 
just under assumed names. And I went down and got the rooms. So you had gimmick names that you gave the gimmick names? Yeah, uh, Joe Beavins and, you know. Burnham Snavitz. Yeah, Matt Burns. Clint from Hershey. It Clint from Hershey. So that, you know, when I hear that, I just have to laugh at it because it's not true. How much money are you paying in interest on your credit cards every month? Too much? Too much. Consolidate your credit cards into one payment, a lower fixed rate, and start saving money. It's easy with a credit card consolidation loan from Lightstream. Rates are as low as 5.95% APR with auto pay, and that's much lower than the national average interest rate on credit cards, which is over 20% APR. You can even get a loan from five to 10,000, even $100,000 with absolutely no fees. You can get your money as soon as the day you apply. And Lightstream believes that people with good credit deserve a better loan experience. That's exactly what they deliver. Uh, I got to tell you, man, I'm a big fan of this. I've used it. Uh, and, and don't take my word for it. Check out this real customer testimonial here. I heard the radio ad and thought it was worth looking at. I was a little skeptical because I'd never done anything like this online before. To my great surprise, the loan process was very simple and easy to navigate through. I wish all loans were this efficient. And just now for our listeners, you can apply and get a special interest rate discount and save even more. Now, the only way to get the special discount is to go to lightstream.com slash wrestle. That's L-I-G-H-T-S-T-R-E-A-M.com slash wrestle. Of course, this is subject to credit approval. The rate includes a half a percent auto pay discount. Terms and conditions apply. Offers are subject to change without notice. Visit lightstream.com slash wrestle for more information. So, uh, let's talk about how the meeting is set up. You know, you've said that, uh, these guys are coming into town and they're going to be at this hotel back in the day. I think we've talked about either Vince would bring them up to his office send the whole limo and all that. But since we're here under assumed names, I'm assuming we're wanting to, uh, not get ourselves in trouble. This doesn't feel like something we want them walking through the office for. So did you guys just like rent a conference room at that hotel or where did you guys meet? Well, I met with them initially at the, I did have a conference room at the hotel and I met with them there. And then after hours brought them over to the office. And by that point they were gone from WCW. They had their full releases and really, you know, it really didn't matter that much other than looking for the surprise and shock value of it all. But we just waited until. I went and had dinner with those guys at the hotel. We sat in the conference room and talked and then brought them over. JR and I met with them and then, uh, each one of them individually met with Vince alone. So it was, it was after hours. It was, <laughs> it was regular hours for us, but, uh, I think after hours for the rest of the office crew, I probably brought them over about eight or nine. Let's, uh, let's dig into that a little bit. What's the context of the meeting? that happens in each location, you know, what, what's sort of the gist Does it just get to know you everybody talk about, you know, what in the world's going on and just sort of tire kicking or are you guys getting into the nitty gritty at the hotel? No, you know, for the initial meetings, it was, Hey guys, we'd love to have you. And what would you like to do? Um, 
this is the kind of company we are. This is how we work. This is kind of what our schedule is. And this is how we do our television. This is how we do our live events and kind of a free, you know, free meeting, a, a get to know you out of the group. The only one that I really knew, um, a little bit was Benoit. Now, Eddie and I, Eddie and his brothers, uh, Hector and Chavo, I was very close with. So had a little bit of an end there on the Guerrero side of things, but didn't know Dean didn't really know Perry that well. Uh, so when JR and I came over again, gave him more of an, uh, introduction into what we're all about, showed him around the office a little bit. And I remember going in and asking Vince, I said, do you want, you want to come in and just meet with everybody or how do you want to do it? He says, ask them how they'd like to do it. And I got the four guys together and I asked them, I said, do you guys want to meet together? Do you guys want to have individual meetings? And they agreed that they would like to meet with Vince alone individually, each one. And that's what they did. They came out of it and we had our terms and went to work. You know, why do you think, uh, I mean, obviously the, the dinner is, is you and Jr. and these guys is Vince's move not to go to dinner and, and have them come to him after sort of a art of war deal or type of deal, or is this more just, you know, he was busy as shit that day and we were killing time till he was free busy as shit. No dinner was just me and the guys. And I just went over more than anything to entertain them and to talk to them and, uh, just kind of get the lay of the land and get as much information as I could and give them as much information as they needed before they went in and did have their meeting. Um, that's all it was. That was social. That was, Hey, you guys are our guests. Let's set up something to eat because it's going to be a long night and take it from there. But doing it later on in the evening was for ease of everybody's schedule. And, you know, even today, Vince takes meetings up until, you know, two o'clock in the morning. So it's, he's a workaholic. He's always there working. That's in our world. That's not unusual. Hang on, hang on, hang on. People are coming to the office at two in the morning to meet with Vince. Yeah. I was there till two 30 last night. Holy shit, dude. Lord bless you. Talk to me a little bit about Jim Ross. You know, anytime these guys story comes up, JR always says, Oh, I signed those guys. And I feel like you, when I said, Hey, you went to dinner with, with JR and, and all these guys, you were quick to say, no, I took them. Was Jim, was Jim not involved in this at all? Cause even in the, even in the newsletters, Meltzer would say they met with McMahon and Jim Ross and pretty well came to terms, but were told to keep everything quiet. And you're saying maybe not. They did meet, they met with Jr. and I, when we took them over to the office initially, and they did meet with Jr. Um, but the terms and all of that was done one-on-one with Vince. I wasn't in the room and Jr. wasn't in the room. Jr. and I set out with the other three guys, uh, bullshitting with them one by one. And afterwards, uh, briefed by Vince, here's, here's what we're going to do with each one. Okay. Let's talk about the individual meetings. Um, did Vince have different impressions coming out of those meetings than he did going in? Like before he met with these guys, did you and he sort of talk about what their potential upsides were, maybe what you saw for them? You know, sometimes we've heard that Vince can fall in love with the talent. Does he see, you know, a Perry Saturn and say, God damn, look at him. 
we could make a mint with this guy. Or what's that look like? What was his impression before the meeting? And, and was it different after the meeting? You know, I think that obviously he was uh, aware of Benoit because Chris had been up for a few times for tryouts over the years. So he was familiar with Chris Benoit. And Perry Saturn was somebody that, you know, he had seen. And Perry had a very unique look and a completely different style, kind of a, a quirky style. But but Perry was unique, man. Perry was a was a stud. And I think that of everybody, when we looked at him, we looked at Perry having a huge upside to him. Um, Eddie Guerrero. From early on, I used to call him the Mexican Shawn Michaels because he could do everything. And, you know, again, Dean was Dean. Dean was the utility guy. And Dean was the guy that you could put in the ring with anybody and have a great match. So when you're looking at box office, the box office that we felt was, was going to be Perry and Benoit and to a lesser extent, Eddie. And that Dean would be a great guy to have, have on the roster. But yeah, I, I th- you know that was the extent of it. And yes, we we talked about Vince and we gave our opinion on what we thought uh, the pros and cons of each guy were. And when the the, <laughs> the one thing I had to laugh at the most is the first time that when Vince met Eddie, and just we walked into Vince's inner office, and he looked at me and says, "He's so tiny." Um, meaning Eddie, because he was, you know, Eddie wasn't the biggest guy in the world. Biggest fight, biggest fight in the room, biggest heart, but yeah, he just wasn't the largest guy in the world. Talk to me a little bit about, you know, these meetings with Vince. These are legendary. We've heard about them for years. Everybody probably at that dinner, I'm just guessing, asked, what should we expect? What does he like? What doesn't he like? Tell us about Vince. What advice do you give guys like that? Be you, you know, just don't bullshit him. Be you and lay your cards on the table. Um, you know, ask, make your ask. If you, I, I gave them the exact same advice. I give everybody in life. If you start off your negotiations and you don't ask the question, the answer is no. Until you ask the question, the answer is no. Because nobody answered yes to a question that they weren't asked. And I just said, you know what? I, I mean, put it out there on the line. I, he's going to make the determination as to what we can afford to pay you on your downsides. I explained the downside guarantees to him and what have you. Um, but Vince... At that time, with certain talent, Vince made the deals. It was up to JR and myself to, you know, go to the lawyers and get it all done. But Vince made the deals. Vince is the one who agreed to the money. Vince was the one who agreed to the terms. So for a talent to come in at that level, they had to, you know, yeah, they had to go through Vince and and figure that out. So the, you know, for them, it's just told them, look, just go be you. Tell them who you are. Tell them what your passion is. Tell them what you want to do. He'll tell you if you can do that, and he'll give you the magic wand, tell you to wave it, 
and then you tell him what you want, what you see. Then the cards fall where they may. So these guys go in one by one. I'm assuming they're all just sort of waiting and bullshitting in the lobby. Are you and JR hanging in there with them or do you just drop them off and get the fuck out of there? No, we're hanging out in JR, my old office. And one by one, they go in and meet with the wizard. When they come out, is it almost like you've been in the principal's office? Hey, what happened? How did it go? That type of deal. Just uh, were you happy? You know, everything, everything good. And and so on and so forth. That was it. And we didn't, you know, I didn't discuss, uh, terms with anybody that night other than Vince. And he kind of said, here's where we're at and we'll bring them all on and take so, it from there. So obviously you guys aren't typing up contracts that night, but Vince at least goes over the broad sort of bullet points with each talent. Like here's roughly what I need from you. And here's roughly what I'm willing to pay. And they go back and forth like that. Yeah. So how soon after the meeting do you guys get contracts drawn up and, and everybody signed pretty much the next day. So got it out to everybody. And, and I don't think that we had to deal with, I don't think any of them had agents, which was nice. We got to deal directly with the talent and it was a pretty fast process. So do they all sign before they leave or do you guys FedEx it to them or fax it to them or whatever? No, we, they, they went home the next day. So we just got it all to them and just normal business. Meltzer says all have been asked to work a storyline publicly that they were leaning towards going to Japan and that they had been lowballed by the WWF and negotiations fell apart. Originally the company wanted them to keep negotiations secret, uh, but word of them going to Connecticut leaked out, which is where the negotiations falling apart storyline was created. Malenko even went so far as to do an online interview saying he was going back to new Japan and was still denying, uh, even to people who thought they were his friends ever meeting with the company. And, uh, Meltzer would say this story in many ways is reminiscent of what has become the quote unquote new work in wrestling, which is providing inside information, both true and false and having it mixed up together with enough truth shown in to make people believe the false true might be true as well. And, uh, largely designed to get he describing his own, uh, dirt sheet, which is false, but because he got some guess something right, that it must be true when he's just making it up. So you guys didn't ask him to, uh, not admit that they had signed. I didn't know. Who do you think would have suggested that? I don't know that anybody suggested that. I think that that's probably something that people like to keep their business private and feel that it's nobody's business, (laughs) what their business is and choosing not to share that information. You know, the, the entitlement of, of some people think just because you're a public figure that you have to disclose everything about everything that you do is not factual. Some people choose to be private about some things. These guys chose to be private about it and didn't want to get it out. So I respect that. Uh, hey, listen. For whatever the entitled people think that they should know, well, then that's their own problem they got to deal with. I'm not arguing any of that. What I do want to ask, though, is from a creative standpoint, when you guys are having them sit in the crowd 
and they're doing so on January 31st. And technically they're free to go to work here on February 1st. Um, you kind of want to make it look like they're a surprise. And what are those guys doing here and all of that? Right. I mean, if you just come out, absolutely. So there's nothing wrong with them, quote unquote, keeping kayfabe saying we're going to new Japan because they want their arrival to be a surprise. It's part of the storyline. And again, that's their choice. But for, for us, they weren't legally, but nothing stopped them from, you know, coming and enjoying a show. I've always loved that work around. Uh, what other plans were discussed for their debut? Was it always to be done as a group and in the crowd or did you guys kick around other potential ideas? We did kick around other potential ideas, but thought that the four of them coming on that four guys is a group kind of is, a uh, the hell's that word I'm looking for. Faction? God damn it. Faction. Thank you. You know, coming in as is, is a faction was kind of cool coming from the other guys, the other group. Now, you know, four guys are coming over from there. One of them had last been seen as, you know, the champion on the other channel and for them to come in as a group had more impact than individually coming in and coming up with four different stories. So let's bring them in as a group. And then from there, we would kind of figure out where each one of them are going to fit in the whole landscape. So it was, you had them and it's like, okay, we can make an impact with all four of them. Let's do it. And then we'll, we'll figure it out from there. It's uh, interesting to think what could have been, let's talk about what actually did happen. January 31st, 2000 goes down at the civic arena in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Um, you know, we've heard before that sometimes you guys would, would tell the talent to come over later, or you would hide them in a bus. So nobody in the back saw them. What's the plan with these guys? Do you remember? I got it. Oh, shit. You know, for, for these guys, I think we kind of kept them hidden and, and then send them in through the front door and here's your tickets and come on in. And those that knew, knew from our end. Um, but it was, yeah, it, it was trying to keep it as real life as you possibly could. So the less people that had to know the better. Um, I don't know that that's necessarily the best way to do business sometimes, but when you have people that, that are intent on, you know, spoiling surprises for people that, you know, want to watch TV shows and things like that, then, you know, you go to those extremes. And sometimes I think there's too much, there's too much credit given to that world. Let's talk a little bit about, um, sort of the rest of the, the locker room, how are they received when these guys come in? I mean, obviously at this point, the quote unquote war is well in hand. WWF is, is just dominating WCW at this point, these guys, you know, for whatever reason had been the backbone of WCW, but not the tippy top guys. Uh, Kevin Nash had famously referred to a group of these guys as the vanilla midgets. What's the preconceived notion 
from the locker room to the best of your recollection of this group? The best of my recollection of the guys that knew them were all more than happy to see them there. Um, I think that there was a genuine feeling of open arms, especially, especially for, you know, Chris and, and Eddie, uh, that seemed to have the most, most friends in the locker room that people knew and, and that, uh, they embraced them and welcomed them. So that would, it wasn't, these are all four good guys right? that, that people genuinely liked. So it wasn't. They weren't controversial. They weren't, um, you know, didn't have bad reputations or anything like that. So the, the overall consensus was, oh shit, man, we got four fucking guys that can go. This is awesome. Well, as we know, we're going to see them here. Um, they end up being at ringside at the beginning of the show. Uh, they're brought in a storyline friends with cactus Jack. Who's trying to get them a job with the company after they walked out in Atlanta and in the process of sitting at ringside, they're hit by road dog and all four attack and lay out the tag champs, the new age outlaws. They also beat up the main street posse and they're turned down for a job by triple H and Stephanie were right smack dab in the middle of the McMahon Helmsley era at this point. And cactus Jack is pleading his case saying, uh, how much it would improve the product with time devoted to them instead of the main street posse. And finally they end the show by, uh, all of them attacking and laying out triple H. And as a reminder, this raw got a 6.5 nitro did a 2.7. What's the reaction backstage? How, how, how was this segment received? It was exciting. And, and I think that there was a, a big part of the locker room. Looking at this is great. We've got four, you know, guys that can be slid right in any spot on the card and deliver starting tomorrow just because of their ability to perform. So overall, I would say it was excitement and there was excitement from them and excitement from our locker room of these guys coming in and saying, all right, this is going to be some good shit. Um, we were pleased from a, uh, from a creative standpoint. I'm curious, you know, how you've told us before that you really fell in love with Eddie Guerrero here and that, you know, maybe Benoit was most on Vince's, uh, radar. Do you know who Pat favored? Did he see somebody in this group and say, this is the star? Yeah, and Pat wasn't really even that involved at this point in time, so I, I really don't remember. During during this time, you know, it was uh, the writers had had come in, and we had we had them involved, and Jr. and I were doing talent relations during this time. So, you know, Pat had had retired from the company. Pat came in and did different things. Uh, from an agent standpoint, did TV and things like that. But as far as him weighing in on talent, he wasn't in that position anymore. Well, I just know, even though he's not in that position now, he'll talk your ear off about how great Dolph Ziggler is and et cetera, et cetera. He's got his favorites. And I just didn't know if one of these guys was, was really on his radar. I mean, Pat, Pat liked them all because they were all workers and 
So, I mean, the, the fact that they could all go and have great matches in the ring, that that was attractive to everybody. Messward, right? It's believed that Benoit received in the neighborhood of $400,000 on a downside guarantee and the other three in the $250,000 range. It really isn't a major issue this year because WWF business is huge and there are no signs of it not remaining that way. Virtually every wrestler this past year earned significantly more than their downside. In the case of all four, the downside figure would be significantly less than what they earned in WCW. So once again, Vince McMahon has sold the old, you'll make more with me. And, uh, it clearly works out creatively. Uh, for Eddie Guerrero and, and, uh, and, and Chris Benoit and arguably the other two as well, but in a traditional sense, it's pretty uncommon to, to think of guys, you know, going to, from a guaranteed contract to take a contract for less money. Is it not? If you believe in yourself and you believe in what you can do and you have an opportunity to do it, uh, all of them made more money than they were making in WCW. So they realized their potential and were able to go out and do it. So it was a good move on everyone's part. That that's what always, you know, you can someone in your game. All right. When, when you're talking about mortgages and things, do you want the salesman that says, yeah, you know what? I'm comfortable with what you're going to pay me monthly. And I'm good with that. Or you want the guy that says, you know what? You don't have to pay me fuck all monthly. Uh, I want to earn it. Just give me a higher commission on all the mortgages that I close. Sure. You want the guy that, that wants to go out and close mortgages, make money for you and for him and or her. So in, in that case, someone that has confidence or the guys that just want to sit back and collect a paycheck every month, that's the same amount. Okay. That takes care of heating. That takes care of the water that takes care of my mortgage. Um, and check it off and go, okay, well, I, I did as little as I had to do to earn that money. You want someone that's going to go out there and say, let me have the ball or fight for it draw or earn money and actually make more money than they ever thought they could. Well, I hate Steven Singer. You heard me. I hate Steven Singer. There's a guy in Philly. You've probably been hearing about, especially if you've been to Philly, you've probably seen the billboards or heard him on the radio, but I hate Steven Singer. What does that even mean? Steven Singer is the most hated jeweler in America. Why? Because other jewelers just can't stand him because he has the best Valentine's gift ever. And we're excited to tell you about it. Steven Singer and Something to Wrestle are bringing you the best Valentine's Day gift ever. Are you listening to this? Picture it. A real long stem American beauty rose, lavishly and deeply dipped in pure 24 karat gold. It lasts forever. You heard right. And they start at just 59 bucks. His beautiful Valentine's bread rose won't wilt or die. It doesn't even need water. This is the number one gift that women want. Something unique, something special. Something that lasts forever. They come with your own personalized love note, all in Steven's signature gift box, shipped for free, starting at just 59 bucks. Go now to IHateStevenSinger.com or the other corner of 8th and Walnut in Philly to see what I'm talking about. Real roses from a real jeweler for your real love. Steven Singer Jewelers, that's IHateStevenSinger.com. You got to see this thing for yourself. Uh, when you see it, you're going to think, man, they've mispriced this. This should have another zero behind it, but it starts at just 59 bucks right now. And I hate Steven singer.com. 
Now the next night it's the SmackDown taping. We see the debut of all four guys. Why was it decided to name the group, the radicals? Whose idea is that? And what do you think about adding a Z? Radicals? I hated it. Uh, I just, I, I didn't like it. I, and I don't know why I can't put my finger on it. I just thought, um, I just thought they didn't need it. Uh, just let them be Eddie Guerrero, Perry Saturn, Chris Benoit, and Dean Malenko. Um, no, no, no. Tell us what your group name should have been. You, uh, you, you have hysterical bad names, so I'm sure you can think of one. The four dudes with attitudes doing skateboards, cowabunga. I don't know. I just, but, but it was, this was, it was like, this is a radical thing. And this is, you know, tied to Mick Foley and by God, there'll be radicals. Um, who were, you know, who were the guys who went back into wartime and, and the, the, uh, you, you look at civil war, you looked at the great war and you, you think, well, there were always radicals that, were so far off to one side and, and while they were often viewed as radicals were probably the most logical of, of any of warring factions and the name just stuck and thank God it didn't stick for long. Yeah. Let's talk about SmackDown. It's the best of three series between DX and the radicals. If the radicals win, Triple H would have to agree to sign them to a WWF contract. And the storyline is if they were to lose, uh, then, uh, they have to earn their way into the WWF in the first match. Dean Malenko loses to X-Pac. And a lot of people may not know this, but there is a little bit of history between these two. Dean's father, Boris Malenko actually trained Sean Waltman X-Pac here to be a wrestler, right? Exactly. Boris Maximilian Vinch Malenko. And if you want to see old school, great heel promos, look up Boris Malenko. And if you can find Boris Malenko and put in Mr. TV announcer and find anything from Houston, Malenko used to cut the absolute greatest money-making promos ever in his program with Wahoo McDaniels. Uh, drew nothing but money. And to this day, think about it, man. Boris was hot from about 1969 to like 1971, 72 in Houston. 40 years ago. And to this day, I was in Houston and I went out to dinner on Saturday night with some old friends. And there was a couple of people at a table next to us and they looked over and they knew who I was and they talked about Paul Bosch and Boris Malenko and the promos that used to go back and forth. Um, that's how strong and how impactful that Malenko's promos were tremendous worker, great trainer. Um, but one of the true characters and, and long lasting characters of this business that is often just too often forgotten and not given his due. A second match ends up being the outlaws in a non-title match against Saturn and Guerrero. 
Uh, Meltzer would write during the afternoon, the plan was to do a singles match with Saturn against one of the outlaws because Guerrero was a few weeks away from being ready to return stemming from an elbow injury. They somehow wound up doing the tag match anyway. And Guerrero in delivering a frog splash appears to have seriously injured his elbow. And it took him nearly 15 minutes to get him out of the ring, causing him to lose the match. He was scheduled to win and thus making the newcomers. Oh, and two against the WWF stars. So Andy Guerrero has talked about this in the past that you guys sort of pressured him into wrestling before he was ready, just because it was the right thing for the angle. And he wounds up hurting himself. Uh, what do you remember about this match and, and, and his early return and uh, his unfortunate injury? I don't remember pressuring anybody. And I think that Eddie was like, no, I'm ready to go, man. I, I can do it. I can do it. I'm, I'm good. Um, and doing the match, you know, I think that that's the way with a lot of guys that they don't want to miss out. So they'll tell you that they're good when they may not be good. Um, I'm not going to pressure anybody to go out there and get hurt and do something like that. And I don't think that we knew how serious his injury was. Um, so to that, mm, come on, Eduardo. Um, but the match. Yeah. It just got a it when it happened and off the damn frog splash and Eddie just rolled over and was like, you know, pin me, let's go home. Cause he, he knew he was screwed at that point. So Eddie and Saturn were supposed to win and it would have been one to one going into the triple H Benoit match to decide the series. I guess that makes sense. The third and final match, as we said, the WWF champion, Triple H versus the WCW champion, although unofficially, Chris Benoit. And Benoit makes Triple H tap with the crossface, but no referee sees it. So Triple H winds up hitting the pedigree to win the match. So ultimately, DX gets a, a three to zero sweep over the Radicals on their first night in, which in hindsight, and if you go back and you listen to uh, our first episode, I just could not believe. But now knowing the context of, well, that wasn't the original plan for the creative that brings a little more context to the situation. Um, what do you think? And you know, in hindsight, you know, you could have never predicted the, uh, the way this injury would happen. Did they make the wrong call by having Eddie lose since he was injured or, I mean, it really was a bad thing for the show in hindsight. Was it not? Well, again, I think you can turn a, any negative into a positive and it wasn't what we had planned, but at the same time, it's, it gives them another obstacle to overcome and nobody was calling that because I think the stereotypical dirt sheet writers and Clint from Hershey would say, well, you have to have the WCW guys come in and win everything the first night because, well, that's what I want to see happen. Um, versus trying to do something a little different where they get fucked and you want to see them overcome something to actually come back in. That was the plan for it to be two to one, um, not three Oh, but shit happens. And sometimes you just got to go with it. We should mention a few days after this, Benoit is on the hugely popular show at the time, the law. And, uh, he's asked, Hey, why didn't they make it title versus title? And Chris says, because the WCW title didn't mean anything and had no credibility to start with because of the way they destroyed it. So it didn't mean anything when I want it. And, uh, he went on to say he was disappointed that he never had an opportunity to work 
uh, with Bret Hart or Ric Flair that was promised to him many times in WCW. And uh, he felt like he really wanted to wrestle those guys. He considers them, you know, two of the greatest world champions ever. And he also says that when he left the building on the 17th, he knew he was gone no matter what. And Douglas was pushing everyone to wait a week because Russo asked them to. But Benoit said just the way we were kicked out of the building, he knew no matter what the decision from anybody else would be, he would never wrestle there again. Did you ever have a conversation with him about just how frustrated he was at the end of his WCW time? Yeah, because he was very frustrated. He wanted out. He just didn't. I think that that Chris would have gone anywhere uh, other than go back there. So it was a a big frustration, and he felt that um, it was over, and and that was not some place that he wanted to work, no matter who was in charge. I think you could have. I think you could have put him in charge, and he wouldn't have wanted to work there, just because there was so much distrust. And he's right. By that point, that that championship meant less than nothing. And, you know, okay. Yeah. I'm the champion. I'm a champion of what the champion of a, of a guy sitting behind a table, pointing fingers like, uh, Steinbrenner and Seinfeld. It, it, it had been reduced to, and it's just been reduced to nothing. And there was still some really great talent that was, that was over there. But they, the glory years had had passed them by, and and they were on that that big decline. Let's talk a little bit about um, Chris Jericho, because these guys are are all friends with him. Uh, famously, you know, we know the relationship between each one. They all had a similar path, where you know they were all in ECW and then wound up in WCW and now they're in the WWE, but he beat him there, you know, by several months and he wasn't off to the very best start, but you got to assume they were talking ahead of time. Did you ever have a conversation with Jericho about any of these guys in this era? Yeah. Chris was excited to have him there because Chris enjoyed working with Ben Wani enjoyed working with actually, I mean, he enjoyed working with all of them. Um, <laughs> You know, Chris was Chris was always funny because he and Benoit would talk about you'd hit me as hard as you want anywhere on my body goes doesn't matter just don't hit me in my mouth my nose or my eye and we're good to go and and they beat the hell out of each other so it was um, there are guys that love that and these were four guys coming in that had no problem going there. So they were all tough as nails and, and could all go. Were they all traveling together right away? Yeah. Yeah. The, they all traveled and, and just hung out together and just quickly integrated themselves into the system. Well, let's run through some of the accolades. As we know, Eddie Guerrero, one-time world champion, two-time intercontinental, two-time European, one-time United States, four-times tag champ, uh, twice with Chavo, once with Ray, once with Tajiri. He is the 11th triple crown winner. He is the sixth grand slam winner. Uh, Barry Saturn, uh, a champ in his own right. One-time European, two-time hardcore. Chris Benoit, one-time world heavyweight champion, four-time IC, three-time US, one-time tag champ with Kurt Angle. What a team that was. A three-time tag champ with uh, Jericho, or world tag champ, rather. Jericho once, Edge twice. He wins the Royal Rumble in 04. He is the 12th. Triple Crown winner. 
And then uh, old Dean Malenko, two-time light heavyweight champion. So all of these guys will go on to capture WWE gold, and it's hard to argue uh, that they weren't successful. Uh, but something else that we, uh, we've started to do here on the show that we didn't do way back when, uh, were, were lots of follow-up questions about the topic in particular. Uh, we've got a ton of questions here uh, about the radicals. We'll try to get through as many as we can here. Uh, but before we do, we need to tell you that our old pal, Josh, uh, has supported our show from day one. And so says Chernoff is a monthly satirical wrestling news show, sort of in the vein of the daily show or the soup from a humorous look back at the month's biggest headlines to a man on the street interaction with fans to the more straightforward deep dives into specific topics like the internet's effect on wrestling or the wrestling fans fascination with jumping ship. The one constant theme throughout the show, sarcasm. You might even say sarcasm is like Chernoff's superpower. That is even a shirt over at sosashurnoff.com. A new episode airs every month on fight.tv. And uh, you might as well go ahead and find his YouTube channel as well. It's youtube.com forward slash so says Chernoff. We would encourage our listeners to subscribe to that YouTube channel for exclusive interviews. They got all the biggest names in wrestling, including Booker T, Dustin Rhodes, Medusa, Darby Allen, Brent Hart, MJF, Ricky Steamboat, The Young Bucks, Tony Schiavone and our own Eric Bischoff and Bruce Pritchard. Uh, you can even find uh, Josh Chernoff on Facebook and Twitter at so says Chernoff. You've probably seen him ho- hosting a lot of different stuff uh, for fight, including StarCast events. He's a trained comedic actor. He's been nominated for awards. He also launched the uh, campaign hashtag. This is Jerry Lynn, which is kind of fun. Uh, so check him out. Uh, so says Chernoff.com. And you might also want to go ahead and subscribe to the YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash. So says Chernoff and fight.tv is where you can find. So says Chernoff. So congrats to Josh on his new, uh, his new venture, big fan of his stuff. Great guy. And, uh, I'm sure you follow the same way, Bruce. Absolutely. Thank you for chiming in. Let's get to the questions here from the radicals. Um, and this is a fun show for me because we had so much content that we covered the first time followed up with the facts here, but everybody still wants to know why did the radicals lose right off the bat? Well, again, because everyone expected them to win. And I, and I think that when you, you look at that, you look at the expectations of the audience, you bring in somebody new. I think that everybody's oh well, they're going to win automatically. And then when they don't, it's well, son of a bitch. They got fucked and you're rooting for them even more to overcome. It's, you know, it's kind of simple in a lot of ways. And had they won the same people that would, that are saying, Oh, well, God damn, they, they, that was stupid for them to lose. would be saying, Oh, that was so predictable. So you can't please everybody. Yeah, it is, uh, something you and I argued a lot about, but I don't think, you know, when you, when you debuted Goldberg, you had him lose on his first night, but you know, that's just me. Um, Dalton diamond writes when the radicals debuted, I remember it being a monumental and pretty big jump for the group, but I'm concerned with how they got there. Did anyone call and ask, uh, straight up Bruce, I'll make the jump. But before I do, I need to know how big's Batista's dick. 
James writes in the original episode, Bruce said that he thought of Saturn as the number two guy that didn't really come to fruition, which well, never mind. He too wants to know about Batista, but Matt Shanks has an interesting question. He wants to know if anybody else comes up in these conversations with these four guys, does Ray Mysterio, uh, his name enter the conversation. You've told us, you know, that for whatever reason, Shane never came back. That's a non-answer. You told us about the phone call with Conan. You told us about these four. What about Ray? Anybody have a conversation with Ray? Did he come up at all? Not at this time. No. And there were so many rumors out there. And I think there was a lot of bullshit and Ray was one of those that had a pretty good solid deal at WCW that man, he probably would have been a fool to leave at the time. He had a, he had a great deal and he had a, a, a nice gig. And I don't think that that would have behooved Ray to have left at that time. Does the differences in the locker room come up? I mean, they obviously don't know what the, what the culture of the WWF locker room is. They know what Jericho tells them, but maybe nothing more. Does the sort of quote unquote toxic culture of the WCW locker room really permeate the conversation and just dominate their motivation for leaving? I don't know that it was necessarily the locker room as much as it was the management and and where they had been placed in the overall scheme of things to them, it was all about, will I be given a fair opportunity? So they didn't feel they had a fair opportunity in WCW and just wanted the chance to shine and show everybody what they could do. Uh, bad money. Slim wants to know how fucking ugly were men's dress shirts at this time. Don't tell me you didn't like those, man. Perry Saturn see-through shirt and shit. Come on. Well, the Perry Saturn shirt and the Crispin Wash shirt, these are both directly out of your closet. I have a good authority. God damn right they were. Tell everybody your favorite I, shirt maker because you wear some loud shirts. And I, and I have some of them too, but you're a big fan. The fuck's his name? Uh, Robert Graham. Robert Graham, yes. I got shoes. I got Robert Graham shoes too, purple ones. I, I, I look like I look like Cal from uh, Modern Family. Charlie Thrower wants to know if Taz was ever considered being a part of this group, uh, not necessarily as a fifth member on the jump from WCW, but their similar ECW background, and uh, it, they're all coming to the company at the same time. Was there ever any creative sort of kicked around for what if they were together? Absolutely zero. No, none. No, that was again, these guys coming over and, and even, even them coming in as a group was only meant to be for a certain amount of time. Straight shooting LA wants to know, do you think Saturn and Malenko were better individually or as a tag team? I think both were incredible workers and, you know, I think that Dean Malenko was not the most flamboyant worker in the world and he didn't have a lot of color, a lot of personality. However, I could watch Malenko work all day long because he is just a, a fabulous technical wrestler and does really innovative wrestling moves. And I just, I, I love to watch it. I like to watch amateur wrestling. So, uh, when you, you look at that, I think that, um, nah, I think that they were both good on their own. Interesting question here from Tony with hindsight being 2020. Would you have booked this differently for their big TV TV debut 
perhaps like a group jumping and making an impact like we saw with Nexus or the Shield in recent past. No. Hindsight being 2020, I don't know that it would have changed a thing other than Eddie not getting hurt. I know I think I asked this a different way before, but a wrestling historian writes, Who did Vince McMahon like the most out of the four after meeting him? We know he paid Benoit more, but does he still think that Benoit's still gonna be the tippy top guy? Does he still like him the best? I think he liked Eddie the best. Okay. After meeting them because personality wise. Eddie turned on the charm and, and I think that he, he walked out of there thinking, uh, Eddie's my guy. Uh, fun question here, uh, from Mike Boland, how would this angle have looked? Had you actually brought in Conan and Shane Douglas, would you have done the same type of debut or something different? You know what? I don't know that it would have been as impactful if we brought in more people. Because now you've got, you're spreading that spotlight out. So, um, I just don't think it would have been as impactful. Concussed Jones writes in that it pissed off Perry Saturn. Easy for me to say when the rock did that great promo saying he would knock that crooked eye straight when the rock is going off and, and, and saying things like this, I assume that's something they get, you know, they talk about beforehand, right? Or is it just, Hey. Let's see what we can do. No, I've got a pretty good idea. And, and again, that that's, that's what makes the shit real and good. Uh, for Nachio writes, were there any plans to change the names of the four radicals or give them a gimmick much like you did when you named Carrie Von Eric, the Texas tornado, or perhaps you could have done the Canadian crippler instead of Chris Benoit. Uh, no, I think that it was so fresh. And each one of those guys, um, you know, they did have an identity and, and had had an identity. So let's, they were the exception to the rule. Lots of people have posted this before, but I'll ask it here in either late 95 or early 96. I think it's 95. In fact, uh, Chris Benoit had a tryout with you guys and he was even managed by Ted DiBiase. Why didn't it work out for him to come back then? Why didn't it work out for him to come back or to start then? Why did you not sign Chris Benoit back then? I think that Chris was looking for something different back then. And Chris felt that he wanted to go to Japan and he wanted to do other things still at that time and didn't want to be full time with us. Um, and I don't think that Chris you know, had even had less personality back then. So it wasn't, it wasn't a really good fit. Andrew wants to know, I have to imagine that Jericho was over the moon when he found out a whole roster of his friends are coming over, especially with the early rough ride he had at WWE. Do you remember how he found out or what his reaction was? Everybody found out the same way when they showed up. Uh, Jay Aholo wants to know when Flair and Arn came to the company in 01, was there ever a discussion of putting together a version of the horseman since you now had Malenko and Benoit there as well? Yeah, no, so, I, I never considered Benoit and Malenko horsemen to me. The horseman was Flair, Tully, Arn, Ole, and JJ and all except Wyndham in that group. 
but any other any other version of that uh, was is so watered down after that no I, that god no Brett Barr wants to know were any other members ever discussed as joining the radicals no let's talk about 2000 here uh, Jim would write in the fully loaded and unforgiven 2000 main events. Chris Benoit was given the title before the matches were restarted. And then the rock retained. Was there a plan to put the belt on Benoit in 2000? Was this just to test out crowd reactions? We did what? You did like a dusty finish with Benoit winning the championship. And then you didn't go with him. Was it to just test crowd reactions? Was it women? I mean, we've heard before the Vince likes to test people too. Was it on TV or was it? These were pay-per-view events for twenty nine ninety five on Sunday evenings. Really? Yes, sir. You have to call your why, local cable. Why the hell did we do that? What the hell was the name of that thing? Pay-per-view. God damn. I don't even remember. I, I don't remember that at all. Uh, Murphy writes in, was there ever a consideration to give them a mouthpiece? They may have lasted longer as a group as Eddie was still not a top guy. And the rest were relatively weak with the mic at that point. Mick Foley was kind of their mouthpiece in the beginning. I mean, but were you, I mean, I know you guys weren't necessarily in the, uh, the manager business, but would it ever even be considered for a group like this when you know, you've got great talent and it's a big group and it's a coup. Goddamn. We're slick when you need him. Um, not as baby faces. I think that that it was almost okay, guys. If you're going to make it, you're going to have to develop personalities on your own, and let's give them a shot. Maybe it was just that they didn't didn't have a shot at WCW. The big question so, I've always had about this debut is why not the Royal Rumble? You know, we. Uh, we know that the Royal rumble happened on the 23rd. You met with them ahead of time. It would have been something you would have had to work very, very, you know, quickly to pull off. But in New York city, man, place would have went fucking bananas. Did you just think you had too much stacked in there already with, you know, such a super card and there's lots of great stuff on there with the Hardys and the Dudleys for double tables and, you know, a brutal match with Foley and, and Hunter and, Taz's debut was it already too loaded? Uh, did you think it would take away, or did, did you just not have enough time to really make the make the deal come together? We didn't really have enough time. Plus, we felt that it would be more impact doing it on television. I think some people would have looked for it and would have gotten lost and not had the same impact if you had done them in the Rumble. Why does it make sense for a guy like Taz to debut on pay per view, but not the Rhino? Different situation. Taz wasn't Taz wasn't coming over. It just was a completely different situation. We had been able to do vignettes on Taz, and there was a tease and a rumbling. I, I don't know how much you're going to want to answer answer about this, but it's literally every other question. Uh, Buffalo Phil probably asked it the best way. Pretend Vince isn't listening. How does Bruce really feel about WWE erasing Benoit from history? I think that it, I think it's the right thing to do again. It's, it's tough when you look at what he's done and how do you measure his, his life. And when you measure what, what he's done, um, 
it's it's beyond horrible. And I don't believe that someone that does that warrants that recognition. I, I just don't. I, I agree with it. It's, yeah, it's history. And yes, it's there. And there's some ways we cover it here. Um, but that doesn't mean that I, in any way, shape, or form, uh, condone. Or I, I just think that you you don't memorialize someone that's done something as, as horrible and tragic as what Benoit did. Let's, uh, let's ask a different question that we got a lot. It's from hot rod. Whose idea was it to give Dean Malenko a ladies man gimmick? Just like Chris Benoit, he got over an ECW and WCW for being an outstanding technical wrestler who didn't need a gimmick. And basically we got that question about every five questions. People are fascinated with this double ho seven gimmick that you guys came up with. This feels like a Brian idea. I think it was a Dean idea. Um, no, it's not. Okay. Dean Malenko says, guys, I got a great idea. What if I was a lady, ladies, man? Yeah. And Jess, and then it's kind of like, he's a good looking guy. Yeah. Why not? He's got a very dry, wry sense of humor. Digging trenches, baby. And it's like, come on. Why not? Maybe that'll bring out more of his personality instead of the guy of a hundred holds or whatever it is. Uh, Matthew wants to know of the four who jumped, who did Bruce think would become WWE champion first? Not all time best and things like that, but who would get, I thought, I thought Saturn would jump to the front of the pack just based on his size and look. He thought uniqueness. Yeah. 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 I Uh, thought Perry had it. Francis wants to know, was there anyone in the back who thought bringing the radicals over was a bad idea? You know, we've talked about when the NWO came over, there were certain people who spoke up and said, I don't know if this is a good idea. Did anybody say boo about this? No, for, and and actually, I think more people were like, "Good, thank God, we finally brought over some of the good guys." You know what I mean? It's like when Undertaker came; those that knew him, they were like, "Oh, fuck, thank God, we brought this one over." Instead of, you know, the comparisons were made to Sid and other people, and um, overall, it was pretty damn positive. They were they were thankful they were there. Anthony wants to know if there was any sort of hazing during the transition. Lots of guys have told stories about when they were the new guy in the locker room, somebody wants to uh, pull the rib or fuck around with them. You know, we've heard some stories, uh, even guys like Jerry Lawler, where they would shit in his crown and things like that. Any hazing going with these guys that you remember? No, nothing I ever heard of. Concussed Jones writes in. Did WWE ever consider bringing in Nancy to be with the radicals or Benoit as a solo? Nope. Uh, the count wants to know what did Bruce really think of Eddie's mullet? Thought it was cool, man. It was like, like Chicano cool. You know what I'm talking about, man? Uh, I don't know. It was, it was so retro that it worked. All right. So there you go. Uh, there is your radicals revisited. We hope you'll go back and listen to the original episode. There's so much emotion in it back then. We were a little less focused. So we continued the story about their individual careers. 
I'm sure we'll get to that another time. Uh, but I was excited to go back and revisit this one, man, and really pay homage to it uh, because it was such an important show in our show's history. And next week, man, something we have been trying to do for a long time. We put her on the pole a lot. And, uh, man, she just never won the pole. Sherry Martell will be our topic next week. We lost her way, way too oh. soon. Uh, she passed away on uh, June 15th, 2007. But next week, we're going to be celebrating her birthday uh, because uh, she was born on February 8th. So next Friday, February 7th, we'll be celebrating Sherry Martell. And what a character she was, man. She was everywhere. She did everything. Uh, and she was one of the uh, one of the people I grew up watching, man. She was such a big part of my fandom as a kid. All the different incarnations we saw of her with the uh, World Wrestling Federation. And then, of course, we remember she was in WCW, and thankfully, we got to see her go into the WWE Hall of Fame and take her rightful place in 2006. I'm looking forward to talking about Sherry next week, man. So much history with Sherry, and Sherry revolutionized from... She was the last of the old-school women wrestlers um, that came from... Man, came from the bottom, worked her way up, and... She also changed the way that women valets were looked at in the business too. And she could hang with the best workers in the business and just incredible, incredible story. Well, and we're going to have some more fun later in the month on February 21st tune in for no way out 2005. We'll keep the 2005 theme going on April 3rd when we revisit WrestleMania 21. And then on May 1st, we'll be back at you with Backlash 05 as we continue to march through uh, what is going to be another great year on Something to Wrestle. If you haven't already, go support us on YouTube. Just go to Something to Wrestle with on YouTube.com and uh, click that subscribe button. We'd greatly appreciate it. Pick up yourself a shirt over at BrucePritchard.com. If you'd like to hear your product or service promoted here, just go to AdvertiseWithConrad.com. And uh, stay tuned. We've got some more fun stuff planned for you this year. Uh, But before you get out of here, you need to make Valentine's Day easy. It's a breeze. And it doesn't get any easier, any more impressive, or any more affordable than IHateStevenSinger.com. These gold dip roses, man, they're legit. I've given one to my grandmother, to my mom. Uh, Now our kids have them. Of course, my wife has one. People love these things. And let me tell you, if you're just going to send regular flowers, yes, she's going to love them. But in a few days, they're sitting at your curb. They're in the trash can. They're gone. This thing will sit in her office. She's going to get lots of play with it at the office. People are going to say, oh, my God, what is that? It's a rose that was dipped in gold. Where'd you get that? My husband got it for me. My boyfriend got it for me. You're going to get credit for a long time. And these things start at just 59 bucks. It's a real rose that's been dipped in real 24 karat gold. You can even send like a signature love note. If you're not sure what to put. They've even got options for you. Can, you can go ahead and select that are just great. They're going to make her feel good. It's shipped for free. What are you waiting on? Valentine's Day is a no-brainer, and it starts at just 59 bucks at IHateStevenSinger.com. Go look at it right now. You'll be glad you did. IHateStevenSinger.com. And Bruce... It feels like uh, it's about that time. He is at Bruce Pritchard. I am at Hey Hey, it's Conrad. And we will see you next week with Sherry Martell right here on Something to Wrestle with Bruce Pritchard. Channel. I know what you're going to ask me. You're going to say, hey, yo, 
you ever have Rashi Pasha Via? I'm gonna say, me no have no pistola. Is that, is that it? Are you done? That's it. I'm done. Hey, everybody. This is Dan Bespris, host of Fantasy NBA Today, a daily fantasy basketball podcast. We cover every box score from every game every day. Plus bonus shows on buy low opportunities, players to stash, schedule analysis, and really anything you could need to smash your league into deliciously tiny pieces. Catch the Fantasy NBA Today podcast, part of the Believe Network, on YouTube or wherever you listen.